pull out your message notes. We're starting a brand new series. If you're brand new to Anchor Ben, thank you for being here this morning. I hope you've enjoyed the worship experience so far. Uh, it really is our desire to connect you to God. If we can connect you to God, then everything else changes. Uh, and I'm hoping that this message will do the same. And the series really has, uh, I think, the potential to impact every one of our lives in a powerful way. We came up with this series as a response to your surveys at Easter. Easter, everybody comes home. About 2,000 of you came home on one weekend, which is amazing. Easter and Christmas, it's awesome. Everybody comes home. So on Easter, we decided to get some information from you. Like, hey, what are some of the topics that are really important to you that you'd like to hear more information or more of the Bible on? And this series is really a hodgepodge. I love it because it's a response to the top uh, questions that you had. And so next weekend, we're talking about stress. Anybody ever been stressed out? Come on, somebody. It's like, woo. You're like, I'm sitting here stressed. That's all right. You're in the right place. Uh, how many have got friends that are stressed out? How many got people that don't go to church that are stressed out that might would be interested to hear how to not be stressed? Uh, it's a great time to invite someone, someone that would may never come to church. I read a statistic, and I was sharing it with my small group this week. How many love all the small groups? Like 94 small groups all throughout the city. It's been amazing. And I was just telling them a statistic that I read I read it somewhere, 82% of people that do not go to church would go to church if someone asked them or be open to going to church. 82%. I know they seem grouchy. I know they seem mean. I know they seem like they got it all together. But isn't that amazing? And here was the sad statistic about it. Then further in the article, it said only 2% of Christians ask those 82%. Wow. Think about it. We got the answer, and all we've got to do is ask because people are looking for a real God and a place where they can come and hear truth that will impact their life. And so next weekend will be stress. Uh, the next weekend we're going to talk about when you're exhausted. Anybody ever been exhausted? You're like, oh, good Lord, I'm exhausted. Good, I got some answers for you. I'm going to help you live life. Um, you know, there's, you're going to be busy. There's things happening, but we don't have to live hanging on by a thread. And so I'm excited to bring a word about that. And then we're going to talk about dealing with difficult people. And don't have to look at your spouse. Just look straight ahead and say, amen, pastor. We're going to deal with difficult people. Uh, maybe your boss or a neighbor or maybe it is your spouse. I don't know. Thank God they're here with you because you might be the difficult person. Come on, somebody. So it's going to be a great series. And I just want to invite you to lock in with us and to go on this journey with us. Today we're talking about evangelism. Uh, the topic specifically is how do I share my faith? It was very interesting in your surveys that this was one of the top things you asked to know more about. Uh, I was a little bit surprised, but pleasantly surprised. And I think the reason that you asked about it is because on the inside, you know that there is a mandate on your life to share the gospel with people. That it's not only the responsibility of the church, but it's the responsibility of all believers to share the gospel. And so then the question is, if that's my responsibility, how do I do it effectively? How do I do it in a way that is compelling and really does it to where it attracts them to Jesus? And so I'm going to share on that this morning. I want to start in Mark 16, 15, which is where Jesus clearly tells his disciples, this is your commission. That you would go everywhere in the world and tell the good news to everyone. 
So the key of our life, the responsibility of our lives is that we would go into all the world and tell the good news of the gospel, that we would preach to people, but not necessarily a sermon, that our lives would speak to people, that the good news of the gospel would come out in a way that people would be attracted to the answer that they've been searching for. And not only is it the church's mission, it's our mission, and we've got to make sure we own this mission. And really there's two types of people and two types of people in this room. The first one is those that are finding God. So you're here, you're doing everything you can to try to search for God. You've been looking for answers. And so you're coming to church. You don't have to believe to belong. You're in the right place. And it's amazing that you're here. I want you to know you don't have to do anything. You don't have to give anything. Just be right here as you continue to find God. But then there's a lot of you, look, you've already found God. So now you're on God's team. So we've been found, it's amazing. But now I am a part of God's search committee. Come on, that means he's going after something and we as believers have got to know he's going after his lost kids. God is passionate about his lost kids. Now I have four kids, four, that's right. My life is busy, busy, busy. We got four kids. And I actually lost one of my kids. I hate to admit it, and it's kind of funny now, but it really wasn't funny back then. And I just blame it on Phyllis. It had to be Phyllis's fault. Come on, somebody. We were at the Children's Museum, and somehow we lost Addison, and it was terrible for about 20 minutes. But let me tell you this. When you lose something of value, how many know I'm not taking an inventory of what I've got? I didn't say, well, I got three others. 75% ain't that bad. Come on, Phyllis, let's go home. No. I mean, I went looking for the thing that I lost. Look, when you find your, lose your keys, you don't say, well, at least I got my wallet. No, you go find what you lost, which was your keys. And I need you to know this, that God is distracted by his lost kids. He loves you. He loves me. He loves the fact that we gather together for worship on Sundays. I think he's looking down from heaven saying, good job. I'm excited to see you here. But don't forget, this is not the main thing. I think he's looking around distracted by those that are not here, those that are lost. I mean, we see this principle of the shepherd leaving the 99 found sheep to go and find the one lost sheep. God is searching for the lost. We see that in Matthew chapter 18. Look, he loves the lost. And as a church, I've just committed and we've committed whatever God loves, I'm going to love. I'm going to fall passionately in love with what he is passionate about. And it's finding his lost kids. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 20 says that we are Christ's ambassadors. Now, I love that word ambassador because that means you represent God, that you must understand and I must understand that you're the only Jesus they will see. Think about the responsibility of that, the way we talk, the way we respond, the way we act. I am the ambassador that God has placed in this life, in this place, in this world, wherever that is, so that people would actually see in this situation, how would Jesus respond? In this situation, how would he speak and act and do? And so we are the ambassadors of God. And we have to know that there's no backup plan. I mean, God, you're the plan. There is plan A. And there's no backup plan. Someone said, well, God, I pray that you would help save my coworker, send someone. He's like, I already did. You. You're the plan. 
Wherever it is that you're at, you're the plan. There's not a backup plan. There is no plan B. And I get it. Look, it's hard. Our culture today, society has changed. We were founded and grounded on the principles of Judeo-Christian values. Our dollar bill still says, in God we trust. But how many know we live in a nation that does anything but trust in God? In fact, if you begin to talk about God, they call you hypocritical. They call you all the different labels. They try to label us as Christians. And it's in an attempt of the enemy to smear what God wants to do in this world. And so I get it. It's hostile environment. It's hard to, to really be like, wow, it's, it's neutral. It ain't neutral. The enemy is trying to steal, kill, and to destroy, and he's using people to do it. And I love what Colossians 4, 5 says. That's why he says, be wise. Everybody say wise. Now notice here, he doesn't say be loud. He didn't say go stand on a corner, get a trumpet, and blow it, or speak through a megaphone. He doesn't say be loud. And so I think at this, what we could recognize is I wonder if there's a difference between wisdom and shouting. And look, he didn't say be silent. And I think that's where most Christians fall on. You're not standing on a street corner hollering at people in, in some bar across the street from a bar. But I wonder if what our problem is, we just don't say anything at all. Well, that's not right either. And look, he doesn't even say be right. How many know you can be right and still be wrong? He says, be wise, be wise that, that our life, we would be wise. And look, he says, in the way that we act towards outsiders, that's people that don't believe in Jesus. That's people that don't have the same values as us, that we would be wise in the way that we respond, in the way that we talk, in the way that we act in their life. And what I've seen when people are trying to reach lost people is there's two extremes there's one where we go secular so that we try to reach lost people. So in other words, we become just like them to reach them. However, you can't make a difference unless you are different. Like at some level, we shouldn't look like them. We should be with them. But I mean, no, we need to look like Jesus. We need to be different than the world. The other extreme is I've seen people try to be so dogmatic that, hey, we're right, we have the solution, you're wrong, and the problem with that is you're just rude. And so it's like, great, you're right, but I don't want Jesus because you're rude. It's not God they're rejecting, it's the package of God they're rejecting. And so I've got to pull us as a church somewhere in the, in the middle so that we would make the most of every opportunity. And look at what it says, that your conversation would always be full of grace. Now think about it. He's talking about outsiders. Isn't that amazing? So it doesn't mean you're judging, you're condemning. Aren't you glad that before you gave your life to Christ, someone loved you enough to accept you right where you were? You might have made cussing or smoking or doing drugs. You might have came in here messed up, but you found a place where it's like, they're not going to judge me. They're going to help me. They're going to love me, and they're going to be full of grace. And I think if we're not careful, we skew it. Like, I got to tell that. No, you ain't got to tell a sinner. They're a sinner. When I was sinning, come on, somebody, I knew I was a good sinner. I knew it. I just needed somebody to love me. I need somebody to be gracious to me. That's what he says. Be full of grace, seasoned with salt. And I love that. Salt makes you thirsty. So your life ought to make people thirsty about, hey, tell me more about this God. Like, like they're asking us questions because of the way we live our lives, the way we talk, the way we act. 
so that you may know how to answer everyone. And that's what I want to do. I want to help us be effective. I want to help us be prepared, like 1 Peter 3.15 says. Prepared to what? Answer everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So here's what people will begin to ask you. Hey, tell me about this church. Why do you go every weekend to Anchor Bend? I'm glad you asked. I'm ready to respond. Let me tell you how my life has been changed. Hey, why are you so busy with the church? Like, why do you serve and do all those things? I'm glad you asked. Let me help you understand now my life has purpose. I don't have a problem-free life. I got something greater to live for than the problems that I have. In fact, you can feel the same way. Let me help take you on that journey. I got a response. Like, why are you in that small group? Like, you just, you, that's your priority. Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked. You know, I've been trapped in the prison of the past, and I found a small group that I can be open with and honest with. In fact, I can take off this mask. I never found a place to be able to take off my mask, but now I found a place. Hey, you ought to come. It would maybe touch your life like it's touched my life. I'm prepared to give an excuse and a reason for the hope that I have. Be prepared. I'm going to give you just three things, three things that will help you share your faith with others. The first one is you just got to connect with people. Look, if we're going to give people the hope that we have, we have to be close to people and close enough that they're going to ask us questions. We've got to be in such proximity that we are connecting with people. And can we please connect before we correct how many likes someone just correct you? Like, who are you? Like, you, I, don't, I don't know you. Right? Nobody wants to be corrected by someone you don't know. But how many know when you've got a relationship with someone and you know they love you and they've got your best interest in mind, now it's like, hey, I appreciate your feedback. Thank you for helping me get my life back in order. But so many times we come with the gospel message that's condemnation, that's shame, that's all these things, but we never connected with their heart. If we will connect with their heart, their actions will change. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I'm just convinced we can win the argument and still lose. That's great, you're right. I don't want to be like you, you're rude. Yeah, that's great, you're right. I'd rather go to hell. I bet there's a lot more people that are happier than you. <laughs> Have you ever heard people say, it's, it's true, it's what the world thinks when someone's so dogmatic. It's like, was heaven filled with people like you? I don't want to be there. And so we've got to recognize as Christians, that was never the response of sinners to Jesus. Jesus loved people unconditionally. Jesus connected with people unconditionally and was amazing to see how his passion flowed through him freely. And that's what I'm excited about with Love Week. We've got Love Week coming up, September 22nd. I am so pumped and fired up about this. On that Sunday, we're gonna do a huge block party. Wouldn't it be awesome if a 1,000 people showed up at one block and just said, hey, we're here to serve you guys and love you and bless you. And then all throughout the week, we're gonna have different service focuses. On Monday, we're, we're focusing on first responders. On Tuesdays, we're focusing on teachers. Where are my teachers at? On Wednesdays, senior citizens. Thursdays, nonprofits. And then Friday, we're just gonna bless our neighbors. Come on, how many know we've been living in neighborhoods? Sometimes we don't even know our neighbors. 
And so the point of this is to get us outside of our comfort zone and to say, look, I want to be a part of something that's connecting with the community. I always told our staff and our dream teamers and our people, I want to be a part of a church that if we were to leave for some reason, our city would actually miss us because we've made such an impact. We've had so much influence in that city. And the way you do it is you show up. You show up to what's important to them. You minister to them. When we connect with them in their environment, now people are open to the presentation of the gospel. So we're excited to see that happen. I want to encourage you, not just Love Week, but throughout our life, continue to find places to connect with People. It's why we exist as a church. It's why we exist as people. And really, it was the mission of Jesus. Luke chapter 9, 19, verse 10. Look at what it says. For the Son of Man came. Now, here's the question we're asking. Why did Jesus come to the earth? What's the reason? And, and here it tells us there was one reason and one reason only. And look at it. To seek and to save that which was, everybody say it together, lost. Think about this. That's the mission of Jesus. That's the mandate that Jesus had. And so if that's what Jesus' mandate was, how I many know that's our mandate? That no matter how great life is, no matter how good your marriage and your family and this church is, if we're not doing the same thing Jesus did, which was to seek and to save the lost, we are off mission. And I'm asking us as a church, could we be a church that lives on mission? How do we do it? How do we reach lost people? I love the Bible because it's almost like it asks questions, like I'm always asking questions. Well, it answers it in verse 1 through 9 of this same chapter. This is Jesus who spoke about what the mission statement of his life is, and then now we're going to see the story of how he actually fulfills the mission. How does he go about seeking and saving the lost? Look at verse 1. It says, Jesus enters Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. Anybody ever heard of Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a... Come on, all my Baptists. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you know the song. I, I forgot. Go ahead, Phyllis. You got it? So he was the chief tax collector, right? So here he is. If you know anything about tax collectors in the, the Bible, they were loathed. People didn't like them. Jewish people hated them. They were the scum of the earth because they took Jewish resources and allocated them to the Romans. And so nobody liked tax collectors. And yet we see Zacchaeus. Here he is. He's wealthy. He's prominent in the Roman status. And yet we see that here he wants to see Jesus. Now I find that interesting. The lowest of low, the greatest sinner, the biggest outcast felt enough love from Jesus by what he did to be more curious to see more of Jesus. So look at what he says. He wanted to see Jesus. And I like that too because they don't want to hear what you have to say. They want to see your life. I think the day for us just saying one thing and living another, those days have got to be over. We've got to live Christianity, and then people will ask us about the God that we serve. It says, but because he was short, he couldn't see over the crowd, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, now, pause here, Jesus, Son of God, perfect. You would imagine you see a sinner, the scum of the earth, you know he's ripped people off. Jewish people hate him. Religious people hate him. You'd imagine when Jesus looked up, he would have said, Zacchaeus, repent. You're a sinner. 
Zacchaeus, you're going to hell. Zacchaeus, you're a ripoff. I mean, you, you can just imagine. How many have ever heard those words? Like, you're a sinner. Look, look at how Jesus, because this is what's important for us as a church if we're going to be effective. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to stay at your house today. And what we know happens is he actually eats lunch with Jesus. And so here he's going to Jesus' house. In other words, look, Zacchaeus, I want a relationship with you. I don't, I'm not going to preach to you. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to tell you about all the bad things that you've done. I just want to get to know you. Can we do lunch? When's the last time those people that we have judged, you've asked them to lunch? When's the last time you heard the story of why they're on drugs? When's the last time you heard the story why they're at the club running around and you don't know the pain and the depth of the trauma that they've experienced? It's easy to judge people when there's distance. Proximity always creates distortion. If I'm away, I can't. But see, Jesus likes to get down and dirty. Jesus is like, look, I don't want you to push you away. I don't want to pull you in. So he comes down and he welcomes them gladly. All the people see this. They begin to mutter. I love that word, mutter. Everybody say mutter, 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 mutter. So, so what do you mean? That, that means he's complaining. The religious are saying, look, he's a friend of sinners. I need you to know the people that are the hardest critics of your life and my life in this church, it's not lost people. Lost people don't even care. They're out doing whatever lost people do. It's the religious. They judge and they, they criticize and they tell you, I can't believe you're doing that. I can't believe. Look, if they're going to criticize us, let them criticize us by saying, man, that church, they are friends of sinners. They hang out with people that don't know Jesus. And it's, I want to be labeled a friend of sinners. Big hand to mutter. Verse 8, it says, but Zacchaeus stood up, said to the Lord, this after his time with Jesus, we don't know what would have happened. How many would have liked to have been a fly on that wall? I just want to know the conversation. All I know is that somewhere in there, Jesus captured his heart because we see the response, which is the response of every person in this place whose heart has been captured by Jesus. Lord, Lord. Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay it back four times the amount. Not that you got to pay restitution, but that those things no longer have you. You have those things because your life is submitted to Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus says. Look, today salvation's come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Now we go back to Jesus' mission statement. So now he showed us how to do it, and here's his statement. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So we got to follow the example of Jesus. I'm going to challenge you to go eat lunch with someone you've been judging. I'm going to challenge you to take someone to coffee that you've been real critical of. You know, the person that you talk about to everybody else. Why don't you take them out and just say, hey, look, I just, I don't know you, but I'd love to get to know you. And I bet you something amazing would happen. I bet God might use you to do a Zacchaeus in their life. A total turnaround because someone stopped judging them and started to love them. Then we got to look for an opportunity to share our story. Don't tell people they need to change. I, there's nowhere in the Bible where Jesus tells you to tell people they need to change. Isn't that interesting? When you go study it out, it's a very interesting thing. No, no, no. The, the only thing we see is in Matthew chapter 5, 16, this with many other verses says, let your light shine, not your mouth move. 
It ain't about your mouth yapping. It's about your life being a light. The way you live, it says, before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And that's what salvation does. Salvation produces good fruit in my life. I can never produce salvation by good works. But how many know, baby, once I'm saved, my life has been changed. There ought to be some proof in the pudding. My life is different because I no longer control it. It's been submitted to God. It's not what you say, but how you live that matters most. And when your light shines, people begin to be curious. They want to know more about God and how he's impacted your life. In fact, the book of Acts verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 8 says it this way. You will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. You'll be my witness. Now, I grew up, I'm 42 years young, and it was interesting, when I grew up, like, there was a movement called witnessing. Anybody ever go door-to-door witnessing? Anybody? How many were asked to do it, but you didn't do it? Come on, don't. This is a bunch of liars up in here. No. I remember as a young teenager, you know, I'm, I'm at church, and it was all about going door-to-door. Now, if you go door-to-door, you probably get shot, so don't do it. Just... But the context that I thought it was was like going door to door. I'm going to meet all these strangers and do, you know, just preach the gospel to them right there. It's kind of a shotgun theory. But that's not really what this word witnessing actually means. When you look at this word witnessing, it's actually set up in a courtroom style context. And if you know anything about courtroom, there's different players in the courtroom. There's a judge, there's a prosecutor, there's a defender, and then there's a witness. Now, you're not the judge. How many know God's the judge? We're not to judge people. Let him do that. You're not the prosecutor. And how many know you're not a defender? You don't have to defend yourself. What you've been called to do is to be a witness. What does a witness do? They simply give their side of the story. So what has God done in your life? How has God changed you? What's the why for you? And I get the privilege many times to tell people, say, well, why do you pastor? And I begin to tell them my story. I hadn't always been a pastor. I was a young entrepreneur. Steve and I owned several businesses together. And early off in our career, we opened up a restaurant. I had just got married to Phyllis, been married a couple of years. Life was good. We were successful. Things were great. But then all of a sudden, the pressures of life began to drown us out. Phyllis and I were having struggles and problems and challenges in our marriage. We were headed for divorce, and instead of turning to God, we turned to drugs and alcohol and partying. A lot of people do that. We did that. First, it was just the weekends. How I many you know it starts off as a weekend? Hey, it's just going to be one night. Well, then the weekends turn to the weekdays, and then it turns to every day. You're on drugs or alcohol. You're just trying to cope, and it was such a tragedy for me. I felt like I was in a prison. I was raised in church, so I remember the hopelessness that I felt. I was ashamed to let people know how far I had gone in my life. My life began to spiral down out of control. Has anybody ever had your life spiral out of control? Found ourselves in this dark depression, trying to cope. And one night, we'd been partying for five days. And February 7th, 2003, 1230 at night, I go into my bathroom, Bunch of people at the house, drugs, alcohol all over the house. Everybody's getting ready to go out again. I'm in my bathroom and all of a sudden, and I don't know how to explain it. Except to say God showed up. I wasn't looking for God. But God came looking for me. And I just remember the presence and the power of God. I ran out. Told Phyllis, 
Hey, God's in this place. You know, when someone's messed up, they begin to pontificate about God. And she laughed at first. She's like, yeah, I bet he is. I said, no, she saw something, felt something. We kicked everybody out of the house. They're all frustrated, mad, didn't care. Why? Because God was in the place. And for five hours, had a visitation from God that changed my life. So now my life's purpose is to help create these God moments for other people to be pulled out of their hopelessness. That's why I pastor. That's why we launched Anchor Ben. And that's my story. And I can't tell you how many times I've shared it. And so whatever your story is, it's your story. Maybe it wasn't as dramatic. Sometimes we were like, well, God, but you were in a service just like this. And God touched you, and God began to speak on your That moment is just as valid. And so we got to begin to be bold about telling your story. They can argue with us about the Bible. They can argue with us about theology. But they cannot argue about the change that has taken place in your life and the encounter that you had with Almighty God. So you got to share your story. The third thing is this. you got to invite people to a place where they can experience God. A place where they can come into an encounter with Jesus. And here at the church, we don't even call these services. If you've ever seen our stuff, it says a worship experience. Why? Because Jesus is a person, not a place. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship. And our goal is not to just check off the list of some service, some religious activity. Our win is, did we connect you to God? Do you know God? That's the goal. And it only happens in an encounter, in a moment where we experience the presence and the power of God. And we understand that these moments, they define us. The Apostle Paul, it defined him in Acts or 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. It's interesting. If you don't know anything about Paul, let me just set it up. Paul was a skeptic at first. We know him as the Apostle Paul. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, but he wasn't always the Apostle Paul. He was actually named Saul, and there was this place called Damascus where he has a conversion. So he's out persecuting this movement called the Way. So that's what they called Christianity at the beginning. Paul's religious. He's devout. He's a Pharisee and a Sadducee. I mean, he is like this man. He's got it all together, but it's religion. And on this road, he now has an encounter with Jesus, an experience with God that religion can never do. Religion is empty and hollow, full of rules and regulations, but he comes face to face with Jesus, has an encounter, and is never the same. And now he goes on to write two-thirds of the New Testament. And when he begins to speak in 1 Corinthians, he's talking, and he says this very thing. It's not about the knowledge. Look at how he declares an encounter with Jesus changes everything. Says, you'll remember, friends, that when I first came to you to let you into God's master stroke, I didn't try to impress you with polished speeches or the latest philosophy, which he could have. He would have been trained up and studied up. This man could have done many things to impress people. But he says, I deliberately kept it plain and simple. First, Jesus, who he is, then Jesus, and what he did Jesus crucified says, I was unsure of how to go about this and felt totally inadequate. And I understand. I feel like that many times. 
I'll come in and I'm, God, I hope they get it. And I always go back to this. It ain't even about me. I laugh because half the time I'll have people in the breezeway or somewhere else. They say, oh, pastor, that was so good. I'll say, hey, tell me what was good. They'd say it. I'm like, I didn't say that. But I'm glad it was good. I don't tell them that. You know what it is? It's the Holy Spirit speaking to them because the word of God is alive. So whether I say it or not, God will deposit it in your heart because he is the one that brings change to lives. It says, I was scared to death. If you want to know the truth of it. And so nothing I said could have impressed you or anyone else. But the message came through anyway. How did it come through? Look, he says it right here. God's spirit and God's power did it which made it clear that your life of faith is a response to God's power, not some fancy mental or emotional footwork by me or anyone else. It's about an experience and an encounter with the power of the living God. That's why I want to encourage you. Invite them to a place where they can have that same encounter. We do everything we can to create this place where the worship is passionate and full of life. We create an environment with the parking team all the way to here to children's environments. We keep it clean because excellence creates comfort. And if you're comfortable, you'll be more open to God. Create it. We work at this. We, we try to find the right moments for God just to breathe into this so that lives could be touched in a powerful way. And I'm reminded of this, you know, as a pastor... It's easy to forget the power of this place because we're here every single week. I I was thinking about it the other day. I've been here six and a half years, just about 52 weekends a year. That's a lot of times. And you can walk in and take it for granted, but don't forget the time you walked in and God touched your heart, God pierced your heart, God grabbed a hold of you. It wasn't anything I said. It wasn't the worship team. It was the presence and the power of Almighty God. Something special when the body comes together. And a couple of weeks ago, Phyllis, I was reminded of this. She and my kids actually go to this place called Parks Youth Ranch. It's just down the road. And they're a safe place for kids to come and youth to come that are struggling in different areas of their life. And so she goes up there on Saturdays, takes our kids and just ministers to some of the teenagers that are there. It's like an emergency shelter type place. My son takes them fishing. They play volleyball. I mean, they're just building relationships and spending time with these teenagers. And two weeks ago, she goes up there and she comes back. I'm at the house. We're going to do dinner together. I was working on the message late that night. And she said, hey. I said, hey. She said, my heart's a little heavy. I said, well, why? I said, talk to me. She said, well, we were at the Parks Youth Ranch and Kids were playing, doing what they normally do. She said, but I saw this girl. And she said, I really, I felt connected to her. And she said, I could just tell, you know, God wants to do something in her life. And I just felt this connection. And she said, you know, I invited her to church, which is what Phyllis always does. She says, hey, if you like, we'd love to have you guys at church. And she said, I told her that. And uh, she said, well, I'm not really religious. In fact, I don't even believe in God. And Phyllis just, she said, just naturally, I responded. She said, don't worry, I'm not religious either. It's okay. And so Phyllis had this idea. She said, why don't uh, don't I ask you to do this? Look, I know you're not religious. You don't believe in God. But why don't you come to church and give us some feedback on this service and let us know what we're doing good and some of the things that we're not. You don't have to believe in God, but just come give us some feedback. We would love your feedback. Sneaky, sneaky, sneaky. Come on, somebody. I thought that, that was great. 
And so we talked, and I kind of laughed at her. And I said, well, you know what's funny? I'm talking about prosperity tomorrow. And uh, of all my evangelistic messages, prosperity is probably not the one for a teenager who's in crisis or not, who's struggling through some things. You know what I'm talking about? But God... At the end of the service, what happens is I, I, I totally forgot about it. We prayed over this young lady. Phyllis comes and gets me, takes me to the breezeway. The moment I stepped up, I knew who this was because we've been praying about it. And I said, hello, and she couldn't really talk. Tears streaming down her face. And I said, well, how are you doing? And she couldn't really talk, so I didn't even ask her to talk. I prayed over her, and as I prayed over her, you could just feel the presence of God. Tears just flooding down her face. I don't know if she's here now. She, she may be. And we just prayed, walked off, and then Phyllis said, hey, guess what? I said, what? She said she was one of the nine people today that raised their hand to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior of their lives. Don't tell me this place isn't special where people who have got walls. I've learned, look, people don't reject God. They reject the packaging that God's been put in. They are desperate for some place that is real. They're desperate for someone to love them, to accept them, to not judge them. I remember a couple years ago, Pastor Brian, we were happened to have one of our services in the cafeteria, and we don't normally do it, but the school moves us a couple of times, and I never forget, Pastor Brian was pumped, and I was on the side, he said, Pastor, guess what? You're never going to believe it. I know you're going to be excited. I said, what? He said, there's a whole row of young people, and they smell like weed. <laughs> and he came and gave me a high five. I said, what's up? That's what's up. <laughs> Smoked a reefer and came to church. And where most people would have kicked them out the door, would have shoved them away and said, go get out. No, baby, Jesus loves lost people. I remember I was that person who was high that God immediately sobered me up at 1230 at night. I know we pray over them to come through these doors. So God forbid when they do, we ever push them away, we ever judge them, we ever push them to the side. We ought to treat them like royalty that they are, that the king has been searching for them. And that we are prepared for them, to love them, and to embrace them. And I just want to give that charge this morning to us as a church. Would we be that church to go out like God has gone out for us and to reach the lost? You know, I know in doing this, there's a couple of challenges in your notes. If you don't have them, I want you to write this down. There are some false beliefs that you have to overcome that the enemy has spoken into their life to lie to them about. Things that are not true, we call them myths. The first one is this. There's a lie that's been spoken out that God can't be reached. Like he's somewhere out there, he's aloof. Like there is a higher power, but you can't reach him, I can't reach him. And that's simply not true. Acts 17, 27 says, he doesn't play hide and seek. There's no peekaboo. No, no, no. That's not what it says. Look, it says he's not remote. He is here always. 
And so this lie, like he's out there, well, I'm too messed up. God is right there. I, I'm too bitter. I'm too hurt. No, no, God is right there, baby. He's there to care for you and to love you. He's not distant. He's not aloof. He's not out there. He is near. Here's the second lie. God doesn't want you. First, I got to get rid of all this baggage. Hey, listen, I need you to know every person who's ever come to Christ has baggage. We've all got hurts. We've all got habits. We've all got hangups. Some of you have packaged it a little bit better, but we're all messed up. And thank God he loved us with the baggage that we had because he will take that baggage away. All we have to do is to come to him. Look at Romans 5.8. You don't have to clean yourself up. I got to get cleaned up for church. Nobody just come right as you are. It says God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were sinners. Sinners. You didn't have to have it all together. He came looking for you just because you were lost and he loves you. The last thing, the last myth I just want to break and then we're going to close is that God requires a lot from you. We've got to be real careful about this. I want to explain it. Salvation is free. You can never work good enough or hard enough or, or enough to earn salvation. It's not like God's got this scale like, here's your good and here's your bad. Which one? Okay, if you tip the scale, then I'm going to stumble into heaven. No, baby, you and I can never be good enough for salvation. Can't work hard enough. Can't do enough. It is a free gift. Look at what Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. What's that mean? It's the grace of God, but I have to believe. It's God's supernatural with my natural. It says, not from yourselves, for it's a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. My greatest challenge and fear is that you got a lot of good people that go to church. They dress it up. They do a lot of good things, but they don't know God. They just dress it up, and they've been lied to. If you do good, good things, you'll make it. No, 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 no. You can't do good things. You simply receive. How do I receive? Look, John 6, 28. What do we have to do? The work of God is this. Believe. Everybody say Believe. Book of John is amazing. 98 times the book of John talks about salvation, and it says, believe. That's your job. Believe what? He's got my life in his hands. Believe what? That my whole life is in his hands. I surrender. He is my Lord and Savior. I trust him to save me, not my works, not my parents, not my pastor, not people. I trust in him to save me. Now think about I. Clean the house occasionally. But I don't clean my house because I'm asking Phyllis to, to love me. Like, I hope she loves me if I clean the house. I clean the house because I want mama happy. Come on, somebody. I don't have to clean it for her to love me less or more. She loves me. She may not be happy with me, but she loves me. Same thing with God. He loves you. You ain't got to do nothing. You're, you're, his love for you is not predicated on what you do or don't do. How do I know? Because he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross just for you while you were still a sinner. And I look at salvation. It's like a birthday gift. You didn't have to do nothing for a birthday gift. When like, oh, you're good? No, it's your birthday. We love you, so we're going to show you some love. We're going to give you a gift. Come on, somebody. I love my birthday. 
It's the same thing, salvation. It's not because you did something. It's because of who you are. And it is the value that you have to God. He loves you. So I just, I pray that this message stirs our hearts. Go into the highways and byways. What do you mean, pastor? Just go to your job. Ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Who, who can I be the salt to? Who can I love? Who can I take to lunch? And why don't you take them to lunch before you ask them to church? Why don't you take them to coffee? Who, and, and I felt the Holy Spirit said, who have you been judging? That's who you start with. Wow, what a mission field. What a challenge. And this is what I know. As we fulfill the Great Commission, this city, this region, this nation will be changed. Why? Because we were obedient to God. We took on what was important to him and we made it important to us. Let us not just gather on Sundays to be fed of ourselves and then come back next week and feed us some more and then wonder why God's not moving in our life. Listen, when we receive, he expects us to give. You want more? Give more. When you give more, you receive more. It's an amazing cycle that God's called. Otherwise, you just become this big damned up thing that just all, you get fat and fluffy spiritually. Come on, somebody. I don't want to do that. Let's, let's reach the law. Let's leverage our lives. Let's leverage our influence. Let's leverage everything. Father, I thank you for this message that you stir up in us, moving our hearts, moving our lives. God, I pray that you just, whatever you spoke in our hearts, that we grab a hold of it. Not, not condemnation, not, not shame. Lord, we repent. Maybe we need to repent. Maybe there's some of you here, you felt this, but you didn't act on it. It's okay. You shouldn't feel shame. Just, just repent. Sometimes that's the Holy Spirit. He convicts us. So you just say, God, I'm sorry. Here's what I always do. I recognize I made a mistake. Give me one more chance. That's the beauty of change. You can't change yourself. It's the Holy Spirit making you aware of what needs to change. And then that's where his grace, his grace is his power and his desire to do his will. So you say, God, fill me with more of your grace. That when I go to work, don't let me see them as I've always seen them. Some of you have got a boss that's been real adversarial towards you. Really harsh, critical, and you've been taking it personal. It ain't got nothing to do with you. They're unhappy, they're lost, they're searching, and I venture to say they're hanging on by a thread, and God has placed you right there in the middle of that so that you could be the salt and light. The way you respond is gonna let them see God in that situation. So ask him, Lord, help me. Challenge you, take someone to lunch, invite someone to church. Share your story. Let God do what only God can do. Keep your head bowed and your, eye, your head bowed and your eyes closed. There's some of you here right now, you've never surrendered your life to God. You've never put your trust in Jesus to save you. And I'm going to give you that opportunity right now. Nobody's looking around, but you're here this morning and you just say, I'm ready to surrender my life to him. I'm ready to go all in. I'm ready to trust him, receive his grace by faith to save me. I wonder if that's you. If you just be bold enough, just raise your hand as an act of surrender. Say, that's me, Pastor. Right here, right now, I'm ready to surrender my life to him. I'm gonna lead you in a prayer corporately. Yes. Come on, just boldly. Just That's me, right here. Yes, yes. Yes. Come on, church. Tell them how proud you are of them this morning. 
Let's pray this prayer together. Why don't we say, Jesus, I need you. Save me. Forgive me. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Fill me with your spirit. I give my life to you right now in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. Come on, why don't you stand up on your feet?